Guests will be able to slide down a clear acrylic tube and the otters can swim around. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast with the host that just got his COVID vaccine, the Rossafari Podcast. <sighs> you know, it's kind of funny and kind of sad that we are living in a time where getting a dose of a vaccine serves as a kind of flex, but here we are. And you know, I, I have to admit, I am really grateful to have had the opportunity to get my shot already. And don't worry, y'all. Most of you know I tour with a couple different musical theater shows, but I am not about to break into a Hamilton cover. That is one shot I will happily throw away. Instead, I'm going to break into the intro for today's guest. Brent Spencer is the director of the Brandywine Zoo, the only AZA-accredited zoo in Delaware, which just happens to be about a half hour from where I live. It's always extra special for me to interview people from facilities I am a member of, and it's really cool when it's someone like the director. But in Brent's case, it's not the title that makes him cool. Brent has dedicated most of his life to taking care of animals, and he's the type of person who you can tell just lives and breathes animals and zoos. He is full of facts and really wonderful takes on many topics, many of which he shares during this interview. I came to really appreciate the way Brent looks at his job and the industry during our time together, both during the interview and when we hung out at the zoo. You see, due to COVID restrictions, we weren't actually able to record our interview together at the zoo because we couldn't be together inside. So we did a Zoom interview, and then I went to the zoo a few days later, and we ended up spending a bunch of time just walking around and chatting. Honestly, I wish I could have recorded that whole thing for y'all because it was super educational, and Brent's passion just shines through whenever he talks about the field at large or about specific animals. He has a lot of great stories, y'all. So, before we get to the interview, just a quick reminder to follow along at Rossafari on Instagram and Facebook and at Rossafari Pod on TikTok. I actually just posted a video on there from Brandywine featuring me booping lots of snoots and also finding some snoots that did not want boops. Also, if you haven't done so yet, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. One final comment before I get to the interview. Something seemed to happen with the Zoom audio as it recorded. I had no issue with Brent breaking up during the interview, but there is definitely some dropped audio and a few moments of weirdness caused by doing the interview in that format as it recorded. I was able to clean most of it up, but thanks for being understanding about the few times it causes an issue during this one. It seemed to get clearer as the interview went on, so stick it out at the beginning and it'll be gone before you know it. And as always, don't worry, it's not that bad. I just, I'm an audiophile and I want everything to sound perfect for y'all. So now, without further ado, here is my interview with Brent Spencer, director of Brandywine Zoo. 
right. So why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where you work, and what you do there? I am Brent Spencer, and I am the director at the Brandywine Zoo in Wilmington, Delaware. That's awesome. And uh, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. I'm always excited when I can get like a director on. Well, I mean, directors have the title, but zookeepers do all the fun work. So <laughs> they're really the engine that drives the the zoo field. Fair, fair. So um, what cut you into this field? Like, take me back. Tell me how you, you got to where you are. When I was a little kid, like a lot of other little kids, I was interested in dinosaurs. And when I realized I couldn't have a pet dinosaur, <laughs> I was bummed out. But I took a step up the evolutionary ladder and found snakes and got interested in snakes, much to my parents' dismay. Um, I got my first snake when I was 11. And between when I was 11 and now, I have been without a snake in my house for a total of three months. I have have always always had snakes at home. And so that sort of led me into the, the zoo field because working in a zoo was the only job I could think of where somebody would pay me to take care of snakes. (laughs) So tell me about your, your pet snakes. What do you have right now? Right now I just have a corn snake. Um, Snakes are, are one of those things that are, are easy to take care of. Um, Very low maintenance. Most of them eat once a week. So I was feeding once a week and cleaning once a week. And for a while I worked at a zoo in the Midwest and there were no local restrictions on what you could keep. So I had a very large collection. I had 125 snakes, a dozen <laughs> lizards, a dozen tortoises, a dozen frogs. My wife was a bird keeper, and she had about a dozen macaws, cockatoos, and parrots in the house. So when we we bought the house, it was an unfinished basement. We built a bird room, a snake room, and the rest of the, the basement was the library. That's amazing. <laughs> It kind of reminds me of that We Bought a Zoo movie. It's just like you had your own herp house and and with birds. That's incredible. At one point, we had more snakes and more parrots in our house than the zoo that we worked did. (laughs) That is amazing. I I have a Western hog nose right now, um, and I just I love him. He's so great. They're 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 a fun snake and, you know, behaviorally, they're really neat also. Definitely. Definitely. Um, cool. So, um, so you, you got some snakes and then, uh, how did you, how did you get into the zoo field? What would you do for education? I've got a bachelor's degree in biology from the university of Delaware. I've got a minor in anthropology. Um, years ago when I was in high school, I was at our local swim club and there was an advertisement on the radio for a newly formed docent program that was starting at the Philadelphia zoo and docents are unpaid guides. So I wrote the zoo and said I was still in high school, so I wouldn't be able to be a guide at the zoo, but I was interested in taking the class because I wanted to work in zoos. So they allowed me to to take the class. Um, So I took that during school. I had a fairly progressive high school that allowed me to rearrange my course schedule to be off every Wednesday for 13 weeks to take the class. And then that summer, I was hired at the Brandywine Zoo as a seasonal guide. And that guide job lasted for about two weeks. And I talked to the director and said, you know, I'm not really doing a whole lot, but the zookeepers need help. You know, is it okay if I do some animal care work also? And he said, yes. And so I started working at the Brandywine Zoo in high school and worked there for seven years while I was in high school and college. And then when I graduated, I went out and worked at five other zoos. And then 
was a keeper, a curator and director at other zoos. And then the director's position came open here at Brandywine and gave me the opportunity to come back to the, you know, my first zoo, my home zoo and uh, rebuild, do everything that I wanted to do when I was a kid and say, when I run this place, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and I had the opportunity to do that. That is just so cool. I love that. Was that like a goal of yours or was it more just that when the opportunity presented, you were like, I'm jumping at this. It, when the opportunity presented and it's, okay. it's for me, it's very interesting because growing up here, my parents were very involved in, in my sisters and I. And so we did a lot of family types of things, but I was ready to leave Delaware and I was going to go out and, you know, discover new things. And when I moved away after being away for a number of years, decades, you realize how much there is to do in this area. And it's a really exciting area, a lot of history, a lot of good natural history. Um, even though Delaware's, you know, smallest state, one of the smallest states, it's a good place to be. And you're close to other metropolitan areas, but we're not too urban. Um, so I found that there was a lot of things here that I, I took for granted when I was growing up. So I'm happy to be back again. That's really cool. Um, what other zoos did you did you work at? When I left Delaware, I moved to Minnesota and I was a zookeeper there working with native wildlife. And then was promoted to senior keeper working in our tropics building doing reptiles. Then we combined reptiles and mammals together. And I oversaw that with another keeper. Moved to the Beardsley Zoo in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and was their animal curator for a number of years. Then moved to John Ball Zoo in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Was curator there for a number of years. Um, moved to Philadelphia, was curator of reptiles at the zoo there then moved to the Turtleback Zoo in West Orange, New Jersey, was curator there for five years and then was director there for three years. And then this position came open and I moved back to Delaware. Amazing. I love, I haven't been to any zoos in Minnesota, but I love every other facility that you mentioned. They're just, they're all so fabulous. And each of them is, is uniquely different. So we go in size from Brandywine Zoo is 4.7 acres the Minnesota Zoo was about 480 acres. Um, most of that space was undeveloped. So probably 130 acres were developed at the time that I was there. But the zoo was very different in terms of um, the way they approach things. The exhibits, obviously, with that much land could be much larger. But one of the things I found very interesting was they had 10 kilometers of cross-country ski trails. So during the winter, you could go out and ski past tiger, moose, muskox, um, Asian lions, wolves, which is a very different zoo experience. And we <laughs> yeah. would have as many people on a good ski day as we did on a good summer day. And this daytime was longer. So people would come out, ski for a couple of hours. The tropics building was a structure that was about three acres. And we built it as the world's largest warming house. So after people would ski for a couple of hours in the morning, they'd come in and walk through the tropics building you know, get some coffee, get some hot cocoa, go back out and ski for a couple more hours. I love that so much. Uh, the the ways that people come up with unique ways to to get people to the zoo and hear a conservation message and and get you money when it's the, the lean season. Oh, I love that. That is so cool. Nice job. The zoos are always, I mean, we compete with a lot of other institutions for discretionary money. And if you're going to take your family out and do something, you can go to the movies, you can go to the beach, you can do lots of different things. So, you know, we try and come up with innovative ways to get people to come to the zoo. Um, when I was at, at Turtleback, one of the things that we did 
we built a new Jaguar mountain lion exhibit. And I was reading the Essex County Magazine and there was a Jaguar touring club. And this was a group of primarily older people who had Jaguar cars and they were doing a car show. So I called them up and I said, we just built a Jaguar exhibit at the zoo. Why are you not doing your car show at the zoo? <laughs> so they came out and we had one afternoon, 47 Jaguars from a 1943 to a 2011 parked on zoo grounds. And the visitors who came in got a ticket and they got to vote for their favorite car. And for the zoo, it was nice because it brought a different group of, of people into the zoo necessarily. And talking with a lot of the owners, a lot of them had been to the zoo when they were kids or been to the zoo when they had kids. And now that they were grandparent age, they hadn't really thought about the zoo. So they were looking for things to do. So they were going to bring their grandkids back. So zoos are always doing that. Here at Brandywine, we do an event called Brew at the Zoo. And we, you know, bring in people who are typically beer drinkers and give them an opportunity to, to experience the zoo after hours. And it's a different type of experience. And a lot of the people that attend that event are younger and either have kids or are at an age where they may have kids. So you want to put the, the zoo in their minds. So we're trying to attract different audiences. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really cool. I also know that there's a trend in zoos where um, anytime you come up with a, an event like that, you have to make it either rhyme or be a bad pun. So there, there's brew at the <laughs> zoo and whatever, you know, it's always somehow you have to sneak one of those two things in there, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, you, you, Again, we're, we're competing. So, you know, you want to find something that's going to going to draw people in. Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm so I'm going to take a minute here and tell you a little story about about Brandywine. So I live right outside of Philly. I am a member at Brandywine and, uh, you know, come down fairly regularly. Um, and when COVID hit uh, just a little over a year ago when the lockdowns all really started, um, I was devastated. I mean, we were all devastated, but my day job is that I'm a touring musician and a whole year of work just went away, you know, and I'm still not back to it yet. Hopefully soon. Um, I have some dates now, so we'll see, but, uh, it was gone. And, um, my other passion is animals and, and all of the zoos closed. And, uh, at the time my, my girlfriend is a vet student and she was on a, um, an externship and wasn't home. And because I had been out on tour before this happened, my, my dog was with her family. And so I was in an empty house with no gigs, no zoos. And it was like a really like tough time for me, you know? Um, and then it occurred to me that if I went to the park that Brandywine Zoo is in, and I stood right at the edge of the fence. I could look in and I could see the red pandas, my favorite animal, and I could see a couple of things. And so I drove the half hour to the zoo a couple of times and just stood. And, and it was so impactful just being able to see those animals from a distance. But at a time when it felt like everything was being stripped away, uh, your zoo served a really cool uh purpose for me and, and gave me something to look forward to and just a little bit of normalcy in a time when everything sucked. And I just, I want to say thank you for that. Well, it's, it's our pleasure. And it's been interesting since we've been open again, our, the public response has been very good. We we've had a lot of people come in. It's a challenge for us. And that we're such a small facility. We want people to come back, but we are limiting the number of people that can come back just so that everybody has that safe experience. And in addition to being safe, we want them to feel safe. So
so, you know, we want them to be able to come in with their families and their young children and be able to experience the zoo, but not worry about there being too many people there. So one of the things we did over the winter is our zoological society handles our admissions and we've gotten a new ticketing system so that we can do hourly tickets now so that we can limit capacity. We're going to monitor stay length of the visitors that are come, coming through so that we can sort of maximize the number of people that we have coming in on a regular basis, but keep it at a safe level so that everybody feels good about their experience. And COVID has been has changed the way everything works, but it was especially hard for the zoo community. And you know, zoos were closed and a lot of other businesses or museums, you know, you can close the doors and you cut your costs, but with a zoo, you know, we still had to have zoo staff there every day. Somebody had to be there to take care of the animals. So there was really no reduction in costs for any of the zoo community. And there have been a lot of zoos that are hurting really hard. And that's one of the things that has helped us tremendously because, well, one of the things that has helped us tremendously is that we are part of Delaware State Parks. And so Delaware State Parks are 65% self-funded. And a lot of that money comes from camping fees and rental fees and things like that. So with people not traveling, once the state parks started to open up and they were back towards capacity, um, their, their cash flow was, was pretty good. So we did not have any staff layoffs or our reductions or budget cuts. Um, so we've come through it pretty clean, but that's really because we're, you know, supported so heavily by the state of Delaware and Denrec and, and the parks division in particular. That's really cool. And um, it actually uh, transitions to the next question perfectly, which is that I, I was going to say, I know y'all are, are you know, run by the state. Um, how does that work? And, uh, you know, are there pros? Are there cons? I mean, obviously, you just named one huge pro, but um, I, I know that's different than most zoos. So I think my listeners would be interested in, in hearing about how that relationship works. It, it is a very different model. I believe there are three other state-run zoos. So it's it's unusual, but zoos are typically state-run, city-run, county-run, or a private institution. And I've, I've worked for all of them now. Being a part of DENREC has been tremendous benefit for the zoo. Um, in addition to the, the support during COVID, right now we've, and we'll touch on this later, I'm sure we've got two major projects. One was just completed in our Madagascar project and one's ongoing right now with the new animal care center that we're building. And both of those projects were funded by the state. So that gives the master plan that was recently completed a tremendous kickstart. So we get a lot of support from DENREC um, by having access to the state services. We have architects and designers and all the construction support that we need we get marketing help from the the state. You know, they handle a lot of the external aspects of the the zoo, so it makes our job a lot easier. And because they're also part of the state government, it's a more effective and more efficient, cost efficient way for us to to do this. So it's it's a huge benefit for us. Um, there's not really any any downside to it. You know, there's always going to be somebody above you, and so you know they. There, there's always going to be somebody who who has you know final say on, on what you want to do, and the experience since I've been here has been again very positive. And you know, the zoo is very different than a lot of other parks. 
because we have an animal collection and we are accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. When we go through our accreditation, every five years we're inspected. So we also have, in addition to state oversight, we have AZA oversight. So it's almost like we have two higher powers that we we have to serve. And so part of my job has been educating people above and below me. It's like, not only this is what we're doing, but this is why we're doing it. And the state response has been very, very good. And people have listened to the things that the, the zoo has wanted. In our last accreditation inspection, one of the things they commented on was that our hospital was small and we didn't have as much medical equipment as we probably should. So, you know, right now we're building a $4.3 million new animal hospital that will meet our accreditation needs. And we have purchased a portable digital x-ray, an ultrasound, uh, a dental scaler. We've gotten a lot more equipment to allow us to better take care of the animals that we have in our collection. So it's it's been a very positive relationship for us. That's awesome. My uh, my girlfriend is a fourth year vet student uh, working towards becoming a zoo vet. And uh, when she heard about this new uh, facility, she got really excited, um, possibly more than about some of the animals there, you know? <laughs> well, it's interesting because when, when we do anything in the zoo, we sort of have three different audiences that we have to work with. One is the animals that live in our facility and that we care for. So we have to meet all of their needs. The second is the zookeepers and zoo staff that take care of those animals. And then the third is the public that come in to see those animals. So each of those three audiences has different needs, different wants, and the job is to balance everything that we do. So when we did the Madagascar exhibit, that hit all three of those audiences, I think, very well. We have a new, really dynamic exhibit that's very different than everything else that we've done at the zoo before. And I think the guests are going to respond to that very well. We have a better animal facility than anything that we've done recently um, for both the keepers and the animals. It's set up well. Um, The lemurs are not cold tolerant, so we have excellent indoor facilities for them. We have overhead transfers so we can move lemurs between various holding enclosures, you know, if they're, they're a social animal and not all social animals get along all the time. So if we have animals that aren't getting along, we can move animals around in there without having to put them through each other. We have space designed in there for the radiated tortoises. So we have one of the enclosures has a heated floor so we can control the temperature for the tortoises. We also have a shelf that the lemurs can sit on that has ultraviolet lights suspended below it in a waterproof container. So even during the winters, the tortoises have a proper temperature gradient and access to UV light, which they need for their their metabolism. So it's a well-designed space um, for the guests and the animals. So I think it's, it's really hitting that one out well. The Animal Care Center basically targets two audiences, and that's for the zoo staff and then the animals that are coming in. All the animals that come into a zoo go through a quarantine period, and it gives our vet staff an opportunity to look at the animals and do some baseline blood draws, x-rays, physical exams, things like this. So now we have a better facility for the vet staff to work in. We have a better facility for holding animals as they come in. A couple of things that we did in there, one of the the stalls in there has a built-in pool. So for any of our aquatic species, ducks, otters, flamingos, things like that, we have a built-in pool that we can can hold them with. Um, And then one of the things we did in there, we've also got circadian rhythm lighting. 
So when the lights in the animal areas come on, they come on with a low yellowish light. And then during the course of the day, that ramps up in both intensity and the, the Kelvin scale so that it becomes a more blue light, which is what you would get at midday. And then at the end of the day, it ramps down again to a more yellow light like it's dusk, and then it goes off. So we're able to provide animals, even though they're indoors, with a natural lighting cycle, which is going to be better for, for them. And then for the, the third audience, the guests, it's not going to be open to the public, but we are going to be able to use it as an educational facility. So we can take tours and classes through there and show them the science that goes into managing animals in managed care. That's really cool. And that's a really, uh, I, I love that perspective of looking at, you know, the three distinct groups that you're trying to serve. That's really cool. I haven't heard that put that way by anyone yet on this podcast. And I think that's really fascinating. Very cool. And it's, it's a real easy way to explain it because in many respects, the animals don't care whether there's guests there or not. So they would be happy if they had a completely isolated, well-planted exhibit where they never saw people, but depending on the animal, because some animals do really enjoy sure, yeah. watching. Um, and the keepers would probably be, many of them would probably be just as happy if there weren't guests in there also. <laughs> so you want to balance all of this out so that you have an exhibit experience where the animals are comfortable, the keepers are happy, the guests are happy. Um, but And so you balance all the the desires for each of those three groups. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know, of course, that animal welfare is above all of that. That goes without saying, but... Um, Correct. But I want to say it anyway, just in case, you know. <laughs> and that that's real important. So it's, you know, it, it used to be that, you know, animals were housed in very substandard exhibits. And, you know, at Brandywine, we've got enclosures that housed animals that we made conscious decisions not to put those animals back. Um, the tiger would probably be a real good example of that. You know, we're not a large enough facility and didn't have a large enough space that we felt comfortable with tigers. So the last tiger we had was moved out. She went to the Bronx and is now living in Buffalo. Um, and as we did the master plan, it was a conscious decision not to bring tigers back. But we are looking at jaguars and snow leopards in the master plan. So we're downsizing the size of the cat that we have, but we can still provide a very good guest experience and provide that excellent animal welfare for the animals that we bring in. Very cool. Ooh, that's exciting. I, I really like the idea of some jags or some snow leopards uh, at Brandywine. That's that's a cool idea. I I, I vote yes for, for that. I don't I don't know if that I get a vote, but I vote yes anyway. <laughs> well, we, we we appreciate your vote. And one of the, one of the things that we try and do to make enhance the the visitor aspect is right now most of our exhibits are very passive experience. You walk past an enclosure, you look in, you walk to the next enclosure. And with the Madagascar exhibit, we've got three primary viewing areas there. And in the exhibit, we've got a small waterfall and a pool. So when you're looking at the exhibit from the, the upper viewing area, you can hear the water moving in the waterfall, but because of the, the grade change, you don't see it. And then when you go into the pavilion, you're behind glass, so you don't get to hear the waterfall, but you can see part of it. And then when you go to the lower view and you're behind mesh again, and you get to see and hear the waterfall. So each of the three exhibit areas is very different. So that gives you a, a different perspective from every, every place you look at the, the exhibit. We are looking at a couple of other exhibits mentioning snow leopards. One of the things we'd like to do is do a parrot exhibit with snow leopards in Markor, which is a sheep species. And we're hoping to set it up so that we can rotate those two species. And then 
everybody's most excited about is we're looking at bringing back river otters and we would like to do a clear acrylic slide that goes through the water column so that guests will be able to slide down a clear acrylic tube and the otters can swim around you. <laughs> so this will make very exciting exhibit. A lot of our audience are parents with young children. So this will be something that the kids will really enjoy big enough that the adults can go down also, but It'll make it a more interesting exhibit for the visitors. It doesn't take anything away from the animals. It's not like we're putting a playground in place of an animal exhibit, but we're just trying to include interactive features in many of our exhibits. That's really wonderful. I like that a lot. Very cool. Uh, that sounds like that sounds like a lot of fun with the otters. That sounds really cool. Um, I think it will be. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Very cool. Um, so. Uh, tell me a little bit more about um, your Madagascar uh you know, set up when, when does it open? Is it open now? I haven't been in a couple of weeks now. So, so what's the deal with all that? We had the ribbon breaking last fall and in, in really broad strokes, we're using 50 degrees as a cutoff for the um, animals to be outside. So we opened it in the middle of November. We had a couple of weeks with animals out on exhibit. Then we had to close it down for the winter and we're at a point right now where we're back above temperatures now. So, um, and it looks like tomorrow is going to be a beautiful day. So the lemurs will be back outside again. So we should be in, in lemur weather now. We worked with the species survival plan through AZA and animals that we could put together. One of the things we're also trying to do with our exhibits are as many mixed species exhibits as possible. Animals don't live by themselves in the wild. So we want to showcase them as living with other animals that they might interact with in the wild. So in our exhibit, we've got black and white rough lemurs ringtail lemurs and crown lemurs. Working with the SSP, all three of these uh, species are either endangered or critically endangered. Um, there's no need for the, the North American population right now to breed either the rufts or the ringtails, but there is an interest in breeding the crown. So our rufts and rings are non-breeding groups and we have a breeding pair of crown lemurs. So we're going to focus on trying to breed the, the crown lemurs. And in that exhibit also, we're going to have four radiated species, which are critically endangered in Madagascar, and a small group of guinea fowl, just to add some motion and sound into the exhibit. So we, we put together a compatible group of animals that um, should be very interesting for the visitors, should have some good interactions between the animals, and should be a good experience for everybody. Yeah, that sounds really wonderful. That whole thing sounds great. Um, that's really cool that you guys are going to be breeding, uh, you said crown lemurs, right? Correct. Nice. I, I'll have to look uh, look this up, but I don't think I, I've ever met a crown lemur. I've spent some time with a lot of different lemurs, but um, that, tell me about the crown lemurs. What are they like? Well, and that, that's one of the reasons that, that we went with them. Um, we have a lot of competition in the area. So there's, if you want to have an animal experience, you have a lot of options in this, this region. And the crown lemurs, there are only 30 right now in North America. So the closest ones to us are, I believe, in Cleveland. So when we put the animal collection together, we were looking for things that would set us apart a little bit so that people would have a reason to want to come here, as opposed to some of the other animals. So the crown lemurs are the smallest of the lemurs that we have in the exhibit. Um, they're also kind of interesting in that they're sexually dimorphic. The male have a black crown. The females have a, a grayish colored crown. So they're, you know, they, they look different as compared to the other two species. So that gives us another educational opportunity with those animals. Um, they're endangered in the wild. 
So it's a good conservation message for us. And one of the things I think that's important to note about zoos is that zoos do a lot more than just work with the animals that are in their facility. When we opened the Madagascar exhibit, we were able to secure some funding for an international conservation. And we selected two programs in Madagascar, one of which is working with reforestation, primarily in areas where the black and white rough lemurs are found. And one of the things that they've discovered there is that the lemurs are widely viewed as one of the world's largest uh, pollinators, but they also disperse seeds. And so they will eat fruit and then defecate the seeds out. And the seeds that have gone through the digesto tract have a better sprouting ratio percentage than just seeds that are harvested. So working with the indigenous people there, they collect seeds that have been digested by the lemurs, and they've got a number of nurseries set up in Madagascar. They're planting the seeds there, and then they're going out and reforesting the, the forest. And they're planting just crazy numbers of trees. And some of their planting events, they'll plant 15,000 trees in a weekend. So this is, this is tremendous conservation work for the lemurs in, in the wild. But the other thing that we really liked was the fact that the other thing that they're working with the people is planting trees that the people can use. So they're planting coffee, they're working with planting vanilla, planting hardwoods that they can use for wood and for charcoal. Conservation doesn't work if the local people aren't involved. And so by supporting a program that contributes to the animals in the wild, but also the people that live in those areas, it's going to be a more effective program than just supporting the animals in the wild. So in addition to having the rough lemurs in our, in our facility, we're supporting rough lemurs out in the wild also. And we're supporting the people that live in the areas around where rough lemurs live. So this is, is critical for the, the type of messaging that we do. One of the other conservation issues for the lemurs is illegal sapphire mining. So when we built the exhibit, I went down to our gift store and we sell little uh, collections of polished rocks that you can buy. And I got a couple of blue rocks and we embedded them into the concrete in one of the artificial mud banks. So now we can interpret sapphire mining as part of our exhibit. And this is something that would impact these animals that you're seeing here. And we're working now to have an artificial rosewood stump made that we can put that in there. And rosewood is one of the trees that's harvested in Madagascar. And it's used for furniture. And for a long time, that was what was used for guitar frets. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Yep. Um, most of the rosewood is illegally harvested now. So what, what we want to do is show, again, this is the type of thing that could impact those animals. So you're, conservation is not necessarily something that's, that's limited just to Madagascar. There are decisions that we can make here in Delaware, how we source our gems, how we source our you know, rosewood guitar frets and furniture, how we source vanilla is another major crop. You know, we should make sure that the, the products that we buy here in Delaware are sustainably sourced in the country where they come from to support the people that live there and the animals that live there. And that's one of the, the primary messages we're trying to get through with this exhibit. That's awesome. That I love that so much. Um, I've I've said this a couple times now on the pod, but yeah, it bears repeating. Um, nothing has surprised me more uh, from the time that I started this podcast to find out that you have to work with humans to save animals. 
Um, I always kind of pictured it as almost like a wall, like the people who want to help animals the most and work with animals the most and stuff are the people who don't like other people as much. Um, and I have found that not only is that not the case, but even when it is the case, you still have to respect the fact that you actually have to take care of those people. And, you know, you cannot, uh, conservation can't exist on an empty stomach and, and people need a way to make money and all that kind of stuff. And if you can provide that, then you're helping the animals far more than if you just try to breed and throw back into the wild animals that don't have room in the wild to be in or whatever, you know, it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey to learn that. Years ago, one of the, the SSP programs that AZA runs is for the Wyoming toad which is a little nondescript brown toad that's found in the state of Wyoming. It's the only place that it's found. When I was the SSP coordinator for that program, we worked with a local rancher out there. And it was very interesting because he would get teased when he would go to stock auctions because everybody else was talking, you know, beef cattle. And he had a lake on his property that was fenced off that we were working with a highly endangered amphibian species. And some of the, my, my favorite conservation conversations had with this guy. And one of the things that we found is the Wyoming toad is more aquatic than a lot of other toads. And so it hangs around the marsh edges. And when we stopped the cattle from grazing there, all the bulrushes grew back up again. So in one of our meetings, we asked him if he would be willing to work with us and during the winter, when the toads were in hibernation, if we dropped the, the fences, could he drive his cattle into this area and let the cattle eat the bulrushes? So that's what we did. And the cattle went in and stomping around on the, on the edge of the, the lake, stomping down the bulrushes, eating the bulrushes. In the spring, when the toads came out of hibernation again, they had that habitat that they were looking for, which was open, full sun, uh, lake edge, uh, places to to sit and breed. So again, very cooperative program with a person who had no vested interest in the amphibians other than they were found on his property, but real willing to work with the conservation community to, to make this a successful program. So it's not just conservation programs in third world countries that this type of cooperation is, is critical to their success. That's fascinating. I got goosebumps when you told that story. That's really cool. Um, so I'm curious when, uh, going back to the Madagascar and the new, um, and the new vet hospital and everything. Um, so when, when a zoo is planning like a new area or a couple new areas, um, I know you guys have a master plan, but like how far out does that go and what kind of planning goes into it? And how do you work with the AZA? Like, cause I know normally animals get transferred, you know, based on the, the SSP and everything. So when you're like, I want new animals, how, how does all of that work? That for me is, is one of the really fun aspects of the job. And when we first started working on our master plan, the criteria that I gave the staff was it has to fit in our facility, which means small facility. So it's not going to be a big animal facility built on the side of a Delaware granite rock face. So it can't be something like a giraffe that requires a flat surface has to be something that's either winter hardy or something that we can provide appropriate winter accommodations for. And even with that, we generated an entire whiteboard of species that met those criteria that we wanted to include. And so what we're trying to do when we, we did the master plan, we put together 
a zoo that's designed with geographic regions. So as we, we flesh out the master plan, the entrance is going to be Central and South America. Currently, we have Andean condors there. The next project after the Animal Care Center is going to be a new entry, which will have a flamingo exhibit. So we'll select the Chilean flamingos to go into that space because they're very cold tolerant. We can keep them outdoors to about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So that gives us a three and a half season exhibit at the front of the zoo. We're going to make it an enclosed exhibit so that you can walk into the space with the birds. And again, a mixed species exhibit. So we're looking at Pudu, which are the world's smallest deer. Oh, I love Pudu. Um, and actually, we've got them coming in for this spring. And so they will be there in a month or so. Um, aquatic turtles, red-footed tortoises, possibly some small parrots, bring back sloths so that they're all in this volume of space. There will be something moving everywhere that you're looking. Not all those animals will be able to be out at 20 degrees, but the flamingos will be. So as you come into the zoo, there'll be a South American flamingo exhibit, South American Indian condor exhibit. The space where bobcat and porcupine are now will be combined into a larger space for jaguar. The area where the three stone enclosures are will come down and that'll become a South American pompous grasslands area. That will be giant anteater, capybara, and Maine wolves. So that'll be our, our South American area. Madagascar will stand alone. North American area is kind of undefined right now. Um, my favorite mammal are wolverines, and I've had an opportunity to work with them in a couple of different places. So I'm, I'm real interested in bringing wolverines back in. Yes, please. I love wolverines so much. And they're so rare at zoos. They're, they're not real common. Mustelids as a group are fascinating, um, real interesting reproductive strategies. It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting John. Mm. Y'all, Brent is not wrong. Mustelids are a really cool family in general. Um, they include things like Martins, Terra, which you may remember from the Bright's Zoo episode, Fisher, Wolverines, a bunch of different kinds of otters, polecats, and uh, badgers and weasels. So all kinds of really cool stuff. And with the exception of the otters, they all have some really unique reproductive strategies. Wolverines and many other mustelids uh, tend to have one male mate with multiple females. And then what happens is when there is a successful mating, the cells stop growing after they've divided four times. So they're eight total cells. And at that point, they just stop. Until perfect conditions come up for the, uh, the the animals to finish growing in the mother's womb. And this is called delayed implantation. Bonus fun fact, red pandas also do delayed implantation, although they're not mustelids. So, you know, just a cool bonus red panda fact because, hey, this is raw safari after all. So anyway, yeah, we've got polygamy. We've got delayed implantation. And uh, we've also got some interesting mating behaviors in terms of just how the actual intercourse happens. Wolverines use uh, their anal scent glands to create a real strong musk to signal to each other that it's time to go. And uh, the actual act itself can be rather forceful. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about this, because after all, this isn't Raw Safari After Dark. 
But uh, yeah, it's definitely some interesting reproductive strategies. All right, back to the interview. And one of the other things that's nice about Wolverines is they have that cultural connection due to the comics that will draw people in, you know, playing off conservation needs and cultural needs that we can, can pull people in with. Um, otters would be in that area. Eagles have a, a strong conservation story, um, sort of undetermined what the rest of that will be. We'll do an Asian area that has snow leopards and markhor. We're looking at siamangs or gibbons. Obviously, red pandas will stay. Would like to do red pandas as a mixed species exhibit and possibly do things like goral, which are a small goat antelope species and white nape cranes. So we would have a bird and two different mammals in that space. Um, potentially sloth bears, smaller bear, kind of unusual. People don't know them up well. And then when we get to our African area, it's again a challenge because we're built on a hillside. So we're not going to have classic elephants, rhinos, giraffe. So we're looking at red river hogs, bat eared foxes, um, colobus monkeys to go on the hillside, crested porcupines to go underneath of them, and then possibly hyenas. Um, again, another one of those animals that aren't real common that I'm a big fan of. So You are naming so many species that I love so much. I'm literally like bouncing over here. Literally. <laughs> like I love just so many like bat-eared foxes and hyenas and wolverines and uh, just snow leopard, all the things. This is amazing. <laughs> and again, it's, it's one of those things where we want people to, to know some of the animals that we have. But we also want to introduce them to some of the other really cool animals that are out there. There's so many neat animals in the world and, and recognizing, you know, we're not big enough to do elephants and giraffes. But there's a whole whole world of smaller animals that are really fascinating. I, I would um, just like to point out that your zoo needs a binturong. I feel very strongly about this. I'm just letting you know on, right now. On, on the hit list. Um, and, and again, mixed species exhibits. One of the considerations, there was a zoo in Europe that combined gibbons and binturongs. Really? So wow. It's, you know, right now it's identified as a gibbon space or Siamang. I mean, that, that's years down the road, but that's one of the, the possibilities that we're looking at. Nice. That's really cool. Because there's, um, you know, like you said, there's a lot of zoos in the area, but nobody has binturongs. And it makes me very sad because I, I love them just so much. And it's it's interesting that, there's so many animals out there and everybody has their favorites and you know it was a hard decision to get rid of the tiger but it was the the right decision to make for a facility that was our size and when we closed down the otter exhibit the we knew that madagascar was coming on we were going to lose the space where the goats were so we wanted something to diff do differently with them the pool in the otter exhibit was needed work and the amount of money that needed to go into that pool to fix it, the rest of the exhibit wasn't worth that expenditure. So by filling in the pool, filling in the exhibit, moving the goats up there, we were able to accomplish a couple of things. We gave the goats a very definite upgrade in their housing space. So they have a bigger space, they have a climbing structure, they have a much better winter facility. Um, so the goats got a big, big upgrade in their space. And we're going to be able to do better for the otters down the road. And one of the things that we wanted to do with the, um, the barnyard where our goats are is we had a group of pygmy goats. And that's, I think, what people in Wilmington identified goats as. And there's roughly 5,000 different breeds of domestic goats. 
and goats were bred as meat animals, as dairy animals, and as fiber animals. And so one of the things I wanted to do was to make the exhibit visually different. So bring in different looking goats and then bring in goats that represented those three types of, of animals. So, you know, here's an animal that was bred as a milk goat. Here's a goat that was bred as a dairy goat. Right now we've got uh, two Angora goats in the collection and this is where mohair comes from. So anybody who, that comes to the zoo that has a mohair sweater, you know, now they can see where that, that wool comes from. And we shear our, our, our Angoras twice a year. So a little bit later this spring, we'll shear them of their, their winter coat and then shear them again in the fall before we go into winter. So we try and, and mix multiple visual and educational opportunities with our collection. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's, that's awesome. And it's so cool to hear about all of these, these future plans. Um, how, how far out are you talking for some of these things? It's all time and money. How much money do you have for us? I, I could uh, throw you a quick five bucks, 10, if you make it a winter wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what we're doing right now is with the master plan, the state has funded the Madagascar project and the, um, the animal care center. So our zoological society, the Delaware zoological society has created a capital campaign, which is reimagine your zoo and the entrance and flamingo exhibit will be the first project in that. So they're starting to fundraise for that. We're raising money right now for the, the plans and the drawings for it. And then we're going to actually fundraise for the construction. So the estimate is roughly three years to raise the money for that. So we'll be going out to the community, going out to granting opportunities to look for funding for this. So, you know, I think the zoo has been stagnant for a long time. And with the investment by the state in a brand new exhibit and a brand new animal care center. Um, I think people are going to see what we're capable of doing. And even with a small space, you know, what a tremendous zoo this could really be. And so we're hoping that that will jumpstart some of our funding opportunities and get people excited about the potential of the zoo. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's very cool. Um, and you know, speaking of fundraising opportunities, uh, isn't there a concert happening soon that's going to benefit you guys and a bunch of AZA zoos? Um, I think I got an email about that like yesterday or even this morning, maybe. Yes. AZA is doing a concert through a series of country Western artists that is open to members of AZA facilities. So if you're a member of an AZA facility, you will get a link that you can subscribe to this. Um, Brad Paisley, Old Dominion. I don't remember the other artists that are involved in this. Um, and then a portion of all those ticket sales goes back to support the local zoo that, that you're a member of. So for us, this is a, an excellent opportunity to expose zoos and the conservation work that we do to a broader range of people. Yeah, that's really cool and really unique. I got really, um, I got really excited about that uh, when I first saw the ad. And I'm not gonna lie, I'm not a huge country fan, but I'm gonna watch the concert just because, you know, I think it's such a cool thing, and I want the numbers to be really good, and I want people to, uh, to see how big um, these events can be and how how helpful they can be. I'm I'm the same way. I you know I'm obviously subscribing for it just to to see it and support the the zoo and support the zoo's conservation efforts. Um, and I think AZA is hoping that they can do this, turn this into a series, so that there will be different genres of music that will be be represented in this. Um, 
Uh, last numbers I saw earlier this week, as you would expect, Zoos in the Southwest are sort of leading the the ticket sales. Don't think that comes as a surprise. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. That makes sense. That's cool, though. I hope this. I hope it becomes a whole thing because that would just be amazing. Um, and then I'm curious. You know, we've talked so much about what goes into the zoo and the the future, but um, let's talk. Just tell me about a couple of the most popular animals at your zoo right now. Well, I, and I, I think looking at the image behind you, you've you've <laughs> nailed one of them, and that's the red pandas, and. I think that, that people identify particularly with animals that they view as being cute. So for most people, it's a fuzzy animal that has a round face. So, you know, red pandas are lesser pandas, giant pandas, things that have high contrast in, in color, giant pandas and red pandas again. Um, things that have pointy muzzles look like predators and are kind of scary. So you know, that typically doesn't fall in high. Um, so for us, red pandas are really high. Goats are really high. People, you know, like those animals. So as I said earlier, we're always going to have those animals that people can identify with readily. Um, and, you know, maybe they've probably have never seen a crown lemur before, and maybe they're not real familiar with, you know, either the other two lemur species that we have. Um, but when you come there and especially with the roughs, when they, when they vocalize, it's a really piercing sound you will not forget that sound. So it makes the, the experience a, a whole experience for you. So, you know, I think the, the pandas and, and goats that we still have, I think the otters were, were popular. And I think the otters were popular because people like otters, but it was also one of the most exciting things we had at the zoo at the time. And I think now that we're, you know, adding the lemur exhibit and when people see lemur exhibit, they're not going to forget about otters, but they're going to get more excited about lemurs. Right. And that's what I see happen. You know, I want to, you know, open people's eyes to different types of animals that are out there. So, you know, we want you to come in for the the pandas and goats and then go away being excited about lemurs or pudu or something that maybe you had never heard of before and realize that, you know, there's a lot of really neat stuff out there. That's awesome. That's a, that's a great way to do it. And uh, yeah, I have a, I have a special connection to um, Shermie, uh, one of your red pandas, just because uh, one of the tours that I did, I played a character named Shermie and going all around the country playing the drums with the name Shermie. Uh, and so I, I like to think that Shermie and I are, are name buddies a little bit. There. Well, it's kind of funny. And, and pandas are, are one of those groups we've had in the past couple of years, at least two different sets of red panda groupies come through and their goal in life is to visit every facility that has red pandas and so you know each to their own oh yeah us fandas are nuts i um i've i've made it a personal goal and it's a completely impossible one but it's fun to try anyway to actually meet every red panda in the country since I, I have the opportunity to do that a lot doing this podcast when I do it, you know, face to face and stuff. Uh, so I'm at 28 of them right now, which is, it's not bad. That's about a 10th of the population, I think, um, in, in AZA zoos. And, and yeah, that is, that is one of my little silly goals that I know will never actually happen, but it would be, uh, it would be pretty cool to, to, you know, feed a little apple to, or just, just say hi to, uh, every, every panda in the, in the country. It's kind of been my fun little goal that I work on as I go to these zoos. <laughs> And I mean, that that's the type of goal that I really like because it's it's going to be challenging, but it keeps you moving and it keeps you going towards something. You're, you're never, never quite where you want to be. 
And, you know, the coolest part about it to me is as it's happened, as I've gotten to meet more of them, gotten to know some of them, have have these cool experiences, um, it made me even more passionate. I, I used to be a fan of Red Pandas, and I still am, but now I am an actual, like – I volunteer for Red Panda Network. I've, I, I'm on their communications team. I've written two articles for them, and I'm going to start working on a third. And uh, have even gone to lengths to like I've tried to get in touch with Pixar because they have a, a film about a Red Panda coming out in 2022. And I'm trying to help connect Red Panda Network and Pixar because I, I have a connection there. And we'll see how that goes. But I am so passionate not just about wearing the hat and and having them on my wall, but how are we going to save these guys and how can I help? And I've raised uh, through Rasafari. Um, you know, well over a thousand dollars so far for Red Panda Network and and more to come. And it just it it lights a fire under your butt. And I think that's really important. And I think it's really cool when you when your love starts to turn into something more with animals, which I know is the goal that, that zoos have with these amazing exhibits and everything. You're you're exactly right. And again, you know, we bring people into the zoo and they see something that they get excited about. We opened our Madagascar exhibit and the second week maybe that we, it was open, we still had lemurs out on exhibit. And I met a family who had taken their two young daughters down to the Duke Lemur Center in North Carolina because the little girls loved lemurs. And it made me smile because when I got interested in, in snakes, my dad was a research chemist and my mom was a historian, art major, homemaker, neither one of them were prepared for this, but were completely supportive of my interests. And, you know, they would take me to the Philadelphia Zoo. And when I was sophomore in high school, I had a lunch date with the director of the zoo, who was also a curator of reptiles. And he gave me a pair of yellow rat snakes. So my parents took me up to the zoo and the zoo director gave me, you know, back in the day, when you do stuff like that. The zoo director gave me a, a pair of snakes. And, Holy cow. You know, now my parents had snakes living in the house with them. And, <laughs> you know, I will be eternally grateful for my parents for, for supporting that interest. And you never know where it's going to go. No, of course. That's, oh my gosh, that's crazy. The idea that you could just walk out of the zoo with some snakes. That, boy, things have changed since then. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we, we can't do that anymore, but you know, it got me started on, on my journey. That's so cool. Um, all right. So we're pretty much at the end here. Only two things left to do. First, I'm going to open the floor to you. If there are any conservation organizations or anything you want to say about your zoo, your staff, anything, now's the time for whatever. <sighs> Touching on conservation first, you know, that, that's sort of the, the, underpinnings of zoos that people don't know enough about. And I mentioned earlier, we work with two different uh, conservation organizations in Madagascar, um, and we support those. But we also do our own projects. And the Brandywine Zoo heads up a Kestrel nest box monitoring program here in Delaware. And we monitor about 60 nest boxes throughout the state. The Kestrel population in the Middle Atlantic region is declining rapidly, and nobody really knows why. So with our nest box monitoring, we set out the boxes, monitor the boxes. When we have chicks in the nest, we will go out and ban the, the chicks, ban the adults if they haven't been banded, participate in a network that you know shares all of this information so we can keep track of you know where the birds are going. So last year, for example, we had 
a bird nesting in one of our boxes that had been banded the previous year in New Jersey. So now we're, we're learning a little bit about what's going on with, with kestrels. We still don't know why the decline, but we're starting to, to gather some information. The other major project that we support is the Urban Wildlife Information Network. And we have a number of trail cams throughout North, uh, Newcastle County that we monitor animal populations in the county. And it's been interesting to look at the, the trend in animal populations and then also what COVID has done to those animals. So we collect all the images from those. And there's uh, this project was started by the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. And two years ago, um, three of us from Brandywine went out to Chicago for a meeting and everybody compares notes. So, you know, what are coyotes doing in Newcastle County compared to what are coyotes doing in Chicago compared to what are coyotes doing in L.A.? So just to get a feel for, you know, what's happening with with the urban wildlife. And this is sort of a an understudied but critically important group of animals. Most of them aren't endangered. So they don't get federal funding that you would for endangered species, and they're not game species, so people aren't tracking them that way. Um, but they have an impact on other populations. So we support a lot of programs that um, that people don't see necessarily when they come to the facility itself. And most other AZA zoos are doing that. There, there's a lot of money that goes from AZA zoos into field conservation efforts. And then the, the staff themselves. You can't say enough about the job that zookeepers do. And whenever there is a weekend, a holiday, a weather event, people talk about, you know, emergency personnel. And you think of police, fire, doctors. Zookeepers are in that group also. There is always somebody at the zoo taking care of those animals. And the zoo community has stepped up big time. Texas got hit really hard a couple of weeks ago by the cold snap. And you look at the, the work that was done by zoos like San Antonio, and they moved all their alligators and crocodiles out of their pools because they lost their heat pumps. So the animals had no, no water. So they moved those animals into public spaces in some of their buildings. They moved all their flamingos into, I believe, their restaurant. Um, <laughs> things that they had to do to take care of those, those animals and, you know, freezing water pipes and things like that. The cold snap also had a significant impact on sea turtles and sea turtles and the ghosts and the Gulf coast were hit very hard. And there were thousands of animals that were cold stunned. They came into the Texas state aquarium and the zoo community raised tens of thousands of dollars to support those animals and they were in for a number of weeks and then have been released as they've been able to, to recover. And that's all zoo staff that's out there doing that work. So I mean, zookeepers are among the most dedicated people that I have ever worked with. And every zoo that I have worked at, at some time or another, I have spent the night at the zoo knowing that we had a weather event coming in and knowing that we weren't going to maybe be able to get staff in Zookeeper staff has spent the night at every zoo that I've worked in just to make sure that the animals are cared for the next day. So it, it's really an unsung population. And, you know, I think a lot of people view zookeepers as, you know, the people who just clean up the poop, but they do so much more than that. They are caretakers and dietitians and vet assistants, and they do everything for those animals. Uh, you said you, you, what you just said is, is basically, um, 
my entire podcast condensed down to, to, to a minute. Um, because yeah, that's, it was as I found that out, as I traveled the country as a musician and went to all these different zoos and started asking keepers just about their animals, but then hearing their stories that I was so inspired that I started this podcast to share those stories. So, um, I think that might've been the most eloquent way I've heard it put yet though. So very nicely done. Um, thank you. And now on a way less serious note, it's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. You hit me. I've been involved with the Association of Zookeepers since I was in high school and was on the board of directors for a while. And every year there's a zookeepers conference. And one of the things that, I don't know if they still do it now, but they used to do zookeeper Olympics where you would do relay races with wheelbarrows and hoses and wearing boots and things like that. And one year they did a contest that was fecal identification. And so the zoo had set up in a room fecal samples from a number of animals in their collection, and they would give you hints and you had to identify the species based on the the poop sample in front of you. And when the zookeeper conference is in town, often this will get picked up by radio stations. And when they found out that we were doing a poop identification contest, this is what all the, the TV, all the radio interviews wanted to, to do is talk about the, the poop identification. So that became the, the radio interview for, for everybody that got, got tagged that year. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's perfect. I'm, I'm telling you, I am amazed. I am shocked at how much the reaction from non-animal people is to the poop story like everyone is so fascinated and like you said it's it's part of the life even as a non-zookeeper myself i just i know that well it's, it's interesting because with with zookeepers you know you look at an animal and you look at the behavior and you look at the diet consumption and you have an idea of what's going on with the animal same is true with poop you know if it's runny something's wrong if it's bloody something's wrong you know if you when i worked with a large group of otters when we would give them Chunk meat, typically the the fecals would come out and would be dark and tarry. And if you gave them knuckle bones, the next day they would come out and they would be chalky and lighter colored. If you didn't know what the animal was eating the day before, you would think that something was wrong. So zookeepers sort of do it as part of their, their job. And I think that the thing that, that people forget is that people are animals also. And so as a parent with you know a new child, you sort of subconsciously, it's like, okay, their poop is really runny today. Do I need to take them to the doctor? I mean, we're all, we're all animals. It's all the same. And, you know, we just want to try and pull people out and make us different than every other animal. And we're not, we're the same as every other animal. Absolutely. That is such a great, great way to end it. You are absolutely correct, sir. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been a blast. My pleasure. And let me know next time you're down at the zoo. Oh, I will. So, as I mentioned in the intro, I definitely took Brent up on his offer and let him know when I got to the zoo a few days after our interview. He shared so much cool information with me, and there's one story I wanted to share in particular. I'm always amazed at just how small the zoo world is, and uh, Brent told me that the crowned lemurs, now at Brandywine, traveled there from the Duke Lemur Center in Durham, North Carolina. Well, it just so happens that Zoe and I have spent some time there and have a piece of crowned lemur artwork from there, which we purchased a few years ago. 
Brent told me the names of the lemurs now at the zoo, and sure enough, that mating pair are two of the lemurs who did our artwork for us. What a small, wonderful world. Also, I know a lot of my fans are looking to get into the keeper field or looking for their first full-time keeper job and are always looking for zoos that uh, maybe are more willing to hire people with less full-time experience. Well, uh, Brandywine may be a place to look. Brent mentioned to me that they often hire younger keepers and that he really enjoys teaching new staff and watching them grow. So make sure you're keeping an eye on Brandywine job openings as it might be a great spot to find that first paid zookeeping gig. You can check them out online at brandywinezoo.org and find them on Facebook and Instagram at brandywinezoo. And as for me, well, you know what's coming. Quick reminder that the word credits backwards is Stiderk. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo. <laughs>